Wired into technology transformation, this is the Digital Bulletin Podcast. Hi there, listener, wherever you are and whenever you're tuning in, thanks for joining us as we sail the technology seas and fish for the topics that matter to you. Rocking the boat with me today is our Digital Bulletin Content Director, James Henderson. How are you, James? I'm very well, Ben. How are you? Very well. Thank Good. you very much. And sat opposite James today is our voice of authority on enterprise IT and fishing, of course, it's Romilly Broad. <laughs> Thanks. Have either of you ever actually angled? No. Is, no. Ang- is angled the right word? Ang- angling. Ang- angling, yeah. There are other types of fishing, probably. Yeah. Trawler fishing. Mm-hmm. I think I'd probably be better at that yeah. than the actual sport. So, yeah. James, is fishing a, a pursuit that's ever interested uh, you? Uh, you know, I've done it a couple of times. I wouldn't say I'm a keen fisherman, but right. I've been known to pick up a rod or two and <laughs> hoist it into the sea and see what I can get out. So. That's not how it works. <laughs> oh, <right. laughs> that's that's not, <laughs> no wonder you've never caught anything. <laughs> you just throw the rod in. Okay. <laughs> that sounds like someone who's keen to get to the pub. Absolutely. That's what that sounds like. Fishing is just a waiting game anyway, isn't it? It's, yeah, pretty it's much. time-filling to then do something else, right? Yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. Excellent. Right, that's enough of that. Well, So <laughs> we've got a great show for you today, folks. We are going to take you inside the walls of BT for a review of our latest digital bulletin case study, which we published a couple of weeks ago. Lots of exciting things to talk about there. Plus, James and I will report back from our recent trip to Barcelona for VMworld. But first, here's some news. Politics, the media, health and well-being, technology's influence on all of these areas has been brought into focus over recent weeks. We've seen Mark Zuckerberg stand up in front of Congress and defend Facebook on a host of issues, namely Libra, its role in the upcoming elections in the UK and the US, and even the company's very existence. Now is there a chance Facebook might be broken apart in the future? Also in the political sphere, Twitter has promised to ban all electoral advertising in the lead-up to polling, something about which Zuckerberg has also come under scrutiny. A short-term PR win for Jack Dorsey and Twitter this might have been, but is it actually enforceable in practice, and who stands to win? Over to Google, which has been busy acquiring Fitbit as it looks to finally take the battle to Apple and Samsung in the smartwatch industry. Elsewhere, former SAP CEO Bill McDermott has resurfaced at ServiceNow, Nokia has gone on a hiring spree to keep ahead in the 5G race, and IBM has built a public cloud just for banks. Now you can find all of the best reporting on these stories and more via the bulletin on digitalbullet.in. But next, we're going to explore two news items in a bit more detail. So, news item number one, in a month where we've seen the major players in public cloud scoop up combined third quarter revenues of a whopping $22 billion. The squabble between two of them, Microsoft and AWS, for a $10 billion contract with the US Department of Defense has at last been settled. James, do you want to um, add a bit more colour to the story and and talk to us a bit about what um, what has happened here? Sure. So it's been been dubbed the most publicly played out contract win of the of the cloud era mm-hmm. um and, and just to recap microsoft has, has won that 10 billion dollar contract and, and and what it's going to be doing is sort of overhauling the u.s department of defense's pretty antiquated it systems now this project's been out for for tender for a little while and it was widely considered actually but by many the aws which is the leader really by any metric in in the cloud industry Strongly tipped to win, to win the contract. All of the all of the talk in the lead, and it was a long lead-in period to this um, contract being awarded, was about AWS. A- as well. Absolutely right, and um, it, 
it seems as surprised as anyone that hasn't won the contract, actually. Um, it's come out fighting, um, and it said that the, the decision to, to award the deal to, to Microsoft Azure, it's, it's just said it's not the correct one, given the nature of the, the tendering process. That's, that's, that's quite something to put in an official statement, wasn't it? That it... It's almost contesting the process that the the U.S. Department of Defense went through. Yes, it, it is. It's a it's a brave decision when you consider who that who they're actually speaking about. But you know, I think this there's a wider context here. And as usual, when you talk about the United States, you very quickly come onto the topic of you know the 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 president um, <laughs> and leader in chief Donald Trump and. Um, it's well known that Jeff Bezos, who did, uh, you know, the, the the creator and and founder of Amazon, and and Trump aren't good friends. We also know that Bezos owns the Washington Post, which has been highly critical of Donald Trump. Um, so th- there's there is a wider context here, and it, there's there's a new book out that claims that the, the president spoke to the Defense Secretary Jim Mattis earlier in the year and directed him to screw Amazon mm-hmm. when it came to to preventing them from, from taking this contract. Um, so the inference here really is that AWS would have got the contract until the political interference from Donald Trump. Allegedly, but I mean, consider this. Oracle was part of the early tendering process, right? And it um, it criticised the single vendor approach, which was going for, which is another conversation. You'd usually be looking at a multi-cloud approach for this. Um, now the Department of Defence has gone down the single vendor approach, and that was criticised. Oracle, who was part of it, after coming out of the running for it, they actually tried to sue the Department of Defence, claiming it that the whole process was tailor made for an AWS win. <laughs> And they've ended up not winning it. So it wasn't just, you know, the people who are looking on from the sidelines who are convinced AWS are going to win this. Oracle, which was part of this tender process, thought that too and actually went as far as to try and sue them. I mean, that was kicked out it's in the fairness of balance. Well, yeah, but it was maybe, kicked yeah. Out. maybe the fuss that Oracle kicked up helped, you know, when there's a lot of noise around a company, even if, you know, the courts ultimately decide that there wasn't any kind of ill doing, the fuss around it can sort of point the decision makers to another in a, to another direction, can't they? Ultimately, Ron, this is surely the most dramatic and publicly played out um, cloud contract in in history, isn't it? What, what, what are your observations from this story? I mean, that that's what's remarkable. I think that's that's symptomatic of the politics in the US at the moment, and frankly, over where we are in the UK, it's we're not that far off either. But you have um, fantastical characters in charge of countries who invite this kind of controversy. Now, um, these contracts are enormous. The procurement process for for something like this is hugely complicated. And and the first thing I want to do is stick my hands up and go, I don't know what's actually gone on here. And now, you know, the there could be any number of reasons that Oracle are annoyed or that AWS are annoyed that AWS won or lost that uh, contract on the basis. I, I've got no idea. I mean, I... I can speak through experience in terms of procurement processes or nothing like that scale, obviously, but IT related or, you know, type procurement processes. And frankly, you know, they can swing on relatively small things, Um, but I've got no idea what it was in this case. The problem that um, uh, Microsoft have got now, of course, in in sort of trumpeting this and saying, you know, we've won this because we're best is, is, is frankly the... The administration of Trump, because 
it's essentially in it, it invites people, especially people like Jeff Bezos, to to cry foul, mm-hmm. whether whether or not there is or not. I mean, I think that's open to debate, as far as I understand. I don't know. Absolutely, I think what the one thing that is clear is that this isn't and sort of an open and shut case now, is it? I think you, you mentioned, Jay, I don't know if you did, but um, Amazon is probably going to you know, consider what officially contesting this whether whether they have grounds to or not potentially i mean i think they had a window of maybe 10 days after the decision it looks like they're probably not going to take that up now what they probably are more likely because the just for some context there to to have tried to challenge that through the courts they would have had to prove um absolutely conclusively rather that their offering was unequivocally better than azure's i'm not, I'm not sure you can really do that there's always going to be gray areas and and perception about that. What they are more likely to do now is, this contract is a 10 year contract, but it's well known that there are break clauses in it. The first will come after two years. So I think what you will see is AWS waiting in the wings to pounce should anything happen. And with the administration, the the way it sort of twists and turns and makes decisions the way it does, you, you certainly can't rule that out. Just for, just one more nugget of information on this, which I just thought um, sort of summed it up really, was that, Obviously, the, the the tendering process was a bit of a mess. So Trump asked his defence secretary, a guy called Mark Esper, to launch a review into the procurement process in the summer. And no sooner had he done it than he had to recuse himself because his his son rather works for IBM, which was part of the procurement process. So it's <laughs> it's it's an absolute muddle and a mess. Do, do you think this whole Project Jedi thing sort of portends a future where you, you we're going to see more battles for billion-dollar contracts publicly played out, especially in the public sector? Because obviously there is a there is a very much a public interest there, isn't there? Especially when you're dealing with sensitive data like the US Department of Defence. Yeah, well, absolutely. And I, I think this is... Um, Definitely true in the context of of where politics is generally now, which is that it's it's essentially politics is now being is is a war waged on social media, and increasingly that's becoming true of of large corporates, and so um, nothing really is happening behind closed doors uh, anymore. Very yeah, and James as a journalist, obviously stories like this usually you know IT um, contract awards are, are quite dry in there uh, when you when you try to spin a news story out of them. But this this has been a great story, isn't it? Oh, there's there's just so many moving parts to it. It's amazing, and, and it goes to you know the very heart of the the US government, which you know there's just writes its own stories for people. Journalists don't really have to work that hard when they're when they're when they're dealing with the Trump administration, do they? And when you add in like Jeff Bezos and and and, and big players like that and, and Microsoft's Azure, this is what happens, isn't it? When you have these behemothic like enterprises yeah. with so many um, things under their control. I mean, Jeff Bezos has nothing to do with AWS. Like he, he hasn't got any sort of say in the no. But obviously, he politically he's associated with it in this story. So we're going to move from cloud to 5G now. And 2019 has been sort of the year of activation for 5G, hasn't it, Roman? We've covered a, a few um, stories on Digital Bulletin over the last few days. Do you want to, first mm. of all, pr- basically tell, tell us why, you know, what has driven this surge in 5G in, in 2019? Well, I mean... Fundamentally, this is the year, really, or this has been the year, because we're nearly at the end of it now, where very, very uh, long-term plans are starting to come into fruition. So we've been talking about 5G for years and years. Um, Now it's finally happening. And that that said, um, it's still not mainstream by any means. We're probably about uh, two or three years away from it becoming a day-to-day reality for most people. 
there's something about 5G that I think most people on the street may not realise, which is that it's 5G isn't really about radio and uh, antennas and things like that. It's it's much more about what's under the ground. Um, it, it may help to just define briefly what 5G actually is. Um, I know our audience probably knows a lot more than we do about what it is, but we might as well just uh, explain in very basic terms, 5G represents hugely lower latency. Um, so, you know, how quickly information could pass from one place to another it, um, and much higher capacity. So there's, we can get an awful lot more information uh, down the pipe uh, quick, more quickly than with, say, 4G. Um, it is also way more reliable and that's um it doesn't drop out you know your phone calls in theory your phone calls will not be dropping out anymore the uh that's probably the most important thing about it so 5g is different to 4g in the sense that 5g is happening because of the needs of machines 4g and the generations before it happened because of the needs of people um voice principally 5G is about connecting machines and the motivation behind that is industrial really. Yeah. Before we before we dive into sort of the, yeah. the the kind of industries that you know might have the biggest impact from 5G James I, I want to get your insights here on obviously as, as Rom said 5G is something that's been talked about for years as someone who's been sort of reporting on on these technologies for 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 a while now what's what's your view on that and why do you think we're only now seeing sort of the the role what why do you think it's had so many headlines over a time where it's not actually had too many implementations do you i, I think because people realize it's obviously we've gone from or well, certainly since i've been using this sort of technology gone from um LTE 2G 3G 4G and they've all been you know, decent steps, incremental step forwards. The, the the step now to 5G is just a completely different matter. And I think that there's there's a lot of hype around it for that reasons because fundamentally it will change how we use broadband connections and internet connections and how it will change industry, not just consumers. So I think that's what the interest is, is, is driven by, certainly. And I think that definitely this year there's been far more reporting on it companies got absolutely serious about it this year there's been a lot going on in the background but in terms of rollouts and um the the, the infrastructure that's been put in 2019 has been the year i think 2020 will be the year where it becomes a, a commonality something that's expected um on the consumer side certainly it, it, i think it will be the first year that apple's iphone which is always sort of always a step behind some of the others but it's a mass market product that will be the one that that has 5g capability so um i just think that we're at we're at a tipping point now the the next the, the work has almost been done in terms of the, the infrastructure certainly in major cities in, in europe and the united states um and now we're about to see the rollout and the actual ability and i do think it's going to really really surprise people certainly yeah. from my perspective i mean when you're looking you know, obviously we sort of spy on all, all the big telecoms companies and, and look at what they're doing in this area but this involves this isn't just a, a matter of networks it involves a lot of um, other companies obviously you, you talk about the the manufacturers like Apple who are trying to um, incorporate 5G and then you talk about the um, companies like Huawei who are trying to build mm. the infrastructure yeah. and as, as you said Rom it's, the infrastructure is very different to, to 4G before now on, on your point about how this is really going to change sort of the enterprise world more than the consumer world. Do you want to talk a little bit more about that and maybe the industries and the 
you know the enterprises that will be impacted the most yeah well i think ultimately every everyone will be impacted every everyone and i mean that whether that's whether you're at home or at work if you're at work then we're talking about enterprise if you're at home then you're obviously you're at home um the the point is that i suppose that the what's required to make 5g happen is first of all uh digging up roads now in cities the reason this is being rolled out to cities and urban areas first is because that that's already happened that they're already there's fiber running underneath them and fiber is absolutely critical for this um the uh the next thing that needs to happen is hugely increased numbers of uh radios um right now we're used to seeing you know uh, poles on the top of tall buildings or out in the countryside or on top of churches or wherever you can get a, a vantage point um, to distribute 4G and other, um, you know, I'm going to use the word traditional, <laughs> traditional forms of, of, of making cell phones work. Um, 5G needs way more of those because the whole point about it is that it gets closer to everybody. So you, you it's more like, they're more like Wi-Fi access points in your house rather than um, big radio mass, right? So there's all of that infrastructure is being laid down, all of which is really easy to do in urban environments. Now, once that happens, you're essentially digitizing your physical environment, all of it. And it enables that because you've got all that hugely increased capacity and you've got the lower latency. Um, Before we started recording, James and I were talking about autonomous vehicles. That's one obvious application for this. Really low latency, so you can rely on it. It's not going to fall apart because it's much more reliable, so you can rely on it. And then processing which is the fact that you know the actual data processing can happen close to the vehicles close to the roads because they're that's where they're going to be within 100 meters i think you know that's as far as you want to get away uh, from one of these nodes um all of that enables not just autonomous vehicles uh, one thing i read about just recently actually which is a good uh, case study is in turin italy um just recently they've um i can't remember the name of the company but they have it's a partnership between government and and uh, business to deploy the, what they're saying is the, Europe's first uh, edge five uh, G edge cloud computing project where they've a lot of buzzwords there. <laughs> oh yeah, I, I got them all in to one sentence. Um, but fundamentally, they've been uh, trialing this in Turin, so it's obviously a big urban built up area. Um, they've been using this to to drive a load of drones around the city. Which, because of all the things we talked about with 5G, you can be confident in. You can fly drones around your city knowing that you're not going to lose connection with them, at least not as as easily as you would otherwise have done over a 4G network. They're using it to monitor rivers for flooding. For There's a lot of old, old buildings and monuments in Turin. They're looking using these drones to survey those. Any of them going to fall over or do they need repairing? You know, that, that sort of stuff. Over the next two to three years, uh, this stuff is going to start to become fairly ubiquitous. Um, we will start using it, whether it's autonomous cars or, or whatever, or downloading you know, HD movie in one second or whatever it is the promises are. Um, underlying that are two big factors. One is cybersecurity. How do you secure a surface area that is suddenly that big? Billions of devices all connecting to the same stuff. The, the second issue, first issue is securing this stuff the second issue is really that um there's an obvious problem where you might find your yourself as a nation disenfranchising your 
remote nether regions, yeah. your, your, kind of, <laughs> your rural areas and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, and so that's, I'm, um, I'm going yeah, to throw it to James here as well, because you know, when, when we're reading up on a lot of this stuff, James, you, you, you hear a lot about smart cities, don't you? So that's, mm-hmm. that's, a, that's a really common yep. buzzword. And we know that a lot of the major cities, major metropolises in the world are, are competing with each other to, to try and you know, raise their game from a technology perspective. But you don't hear a lot about smart towns or smart villages or smart no. countryside. So do you think, Ron was sort of hinted at it there, but this is going to be a major problem going forward, isn't it? Because here in the UK, we still have problems with, with other um, other bands. So there, yeah, there, there, you know, mm. there are still, you know, we live in a, a pretty rural part of, of uh, the UK. Um, and we know that there are still villages and towns which have, have, have barely got faster speeds than, than we had as, as di- when we had dial-up. So... Uh, <laughs> It, it, it's a huge problem and there's there's absolutely no, no two ways about it that governments need to be lobbied a lot harder than they are currently and they they need to take responsibility that yeah your smart cities are important because you need to join these places up you need the data from them to make them more efficient more effective metropolises right mm-hmm. but you can't just forget about people who don't live in these in these sort of big city locations you can't have the sort of haves and have nots. It doesn't really work. We we probably need to move on, but wh- where where is this going to go? Like, what are the next steps? Do you think? In, yeah, in I think it, it's important to understand that the the nature of of the problem. So the we've already got, as you were just saying, there are parts of the UK which is a relatively tiny place with a high concentration of people in urban areas, and and yet the, even the UK still can't do this. There are bits of the country that still don't have reliable four G access, um, let alone five G. So, um, and that's already a problem. But with, with 5G, because it's so reliant, you can't bounce 5G off satellites, by the way. It's, they're far too far away. You need the physical infrastructure. That's, uh, and the difference between 4G and 5G is so big that there's a, a real risk that parts of the country that are already disenfranchised are going to become even more disenfranchised and even further away from that problem being solved than, than we have now. Right, we must move on. Obviously, 5G and cloud, the two topics we've just discussed, are going to envelop us even more in the future, so there's no doubt about that. Um, that's enough news for now. We're going to move on to our BT case study after this little break. Find us as Digital Bulletin on LinkedIn, Facebook and Instagram and at digi underscore bulletin on Twitter. So let's dive into our case study discussion. Now, you may remember that last month on the podcast, we touched on the topic of intelligent automation in the public sector. Now we're going to look at how automation is being deployed by BT, one of the biggest telecoms providers in the world. We were lucky enough to be invited to BT's site at Adastral Park here in the UK, where it does a lot of its innovation work and which has been the hub for its implementation of RPA, or Robotic Process Automation, over the last three years. Lee Fevier is BT's principal solution architect for intelligent automation and has overseen deployments which has so far saved 20,000 hours of manual work inside the company. Here is Lee as part of our exclusive interview explaining his wider vision for automation at BT. BT, when in, in five to ten years when, when we've achieved and exceeded our, uh, our automation ambitions, will be um, a more efficient organisation it will be a, a better organisation to work in. Employees will have um, more interesting jobs to do. And some of those jobs, it's not just about freeing up hours uh, so they can, they can do more of their current job. You know, some, when we get really big 
um, scale in our automation journey. There will be a lot of jobs out there working with the robots themselves. So there, there are new jobs being created by the automation. So, so I see BT um, becoming a, a more interesting place to work. I can see us be, well I'm very hopeful that we'll be a much more responsive organisation. We'll be able to do what we do faster, which will lead to um, hugely improved customer experience and ultimately shareholder value. So we'll have people doing what people do best and then robots doing it, what robots do best, the, the more mundane and repetitive work. But as we, as we grow at scale, um, I'd like to see a place where actually our, our digital workforce and our human workforce are actually working side by side collaboratively. It's not just there's RPA and it's a solution, but, but we truly have a digital workforce that are handing tasks back and forth between the human workforce and kind of working in, in perfect harmony, so to speak. Now, Ron was our man on the ground at BT. Ron, was this vision of harmony between human and digital workers that Lee speaks of something that you were convinced by after you spent time at BT? Yeah, actually I, I was. And um, Lee's a, a, a convincing um, leader in that regard. He's tasked not just with understanding uh, the nuts and bolts of the technology, which he's very well placed to do, um, if you read our article, you'll understand a bit more about his history, but basically he's, he's worked at BT for 35 years or something, starting as a, a software tester. And he's been through just about everything you can imagine on a technology level since then. So he understands that. But then there is the challenge of communicating that to the people around it. BT's got 100,000 people working for it around the world, all of whom potentially stand to be impacted in, in a literal sense by this. His job is to convince them that this is a good thing, because if you read mainstream media, obviously, automation, um, in a very general sense, is bad for people. But um, he uh, is convinced that it's not. I'm convinced that it's not, having spoken to him and others. We didn't just speak to Lee. Obviously, we spoke to uh, Martin Stevenson from uh, Blue Prism and Lewis Huerta from I think I said that right, from, from Cognizant, who are both assisting BT in that journey. And um, the, the truth is they're making people's lives far less grindy and horrible. These are processes run by software invented to take away some of the pointless, mundane, repetitive nonsense that all of us have had to suffer over our careers. And, you know, by doing that, you're freeing up time for people to do better things. Absolutely. Well, touch more on, the, on that people point in, in a moment. We'll, we'll hear another clip from Lee as well. But in the article, um, James, he, Lee talks about the, the kind of huge growth ambition that BT mm. has for RPA, in, especially sort of within his own technology department where he wants to, I think, double, double and then double again over yep. the next three years, the number of hours saved. Now, from your experience, where would you rank RPA in, in sort of the list of the most sort of effective technologies that in business today because it is something that's really having an impact today isn't it yeah i think i think you could argue that it's sort of up there with cloud now actually in in terms of how it's changing business and how it it will will change almost every area of industry i think or it certainly has the the potential to do that so i think that undoubtedly cloud has changed the, the landscape um of the last 5 years i think rpa is doing that now is beginning to do that and, and i certainly think that's on a real upward curve that upward trajectory when he talks about those sorts of hours being saved going from 20,000 through to i, I don't know hundreds and mm. hundreds of thousands um so i i think i think it's up there with cloud frankly in in, in the top 2 i think that there is still definitely that pr war to be won out there because 
there is this trust still. We're going to hear, as I said, we're going to hear from Lee on that on that sort of people challenge in a moment. But Ron, this is about intelligent automation, isn't it? And what right. that yeah. means, and that's BT's ultimate ambition here. Now, this the intelligent automation sort of includes enlisting robots overnight to sort of further streamline business processes and other things like that. How do you believe cognitive technologies can help move automation further forward? And what is BT doing in that area? Well, I, one of the most interesting things actually when I was talking to Lee was his answer to that which was RPA on on its own is it's actually not really that new as a technology Blue Prism itself which is the the provider of the platform that BT is using amongst many others um, uh, that Blue Prism itself was set up uh, and went to market in the early 2000s like 2001 or something so I mean this has been going on for ages Um, it's only now actually facilitated by things like James is talking about like um, cloud and whatnot where you can actually start to um, leverage vast, um, ubiquitously available data sources, etc., to make this stuff kind of really, really powerful. Um, that in itself um, is a very useful technology for driving efficiency and, you know, as Lee would put it, improving people's working lives. Um, but it's not cognitive, it's not intelligent. So on top of that, you're looking at AI and machine learning and, uh, and some other flavours of cleverness. But Lee admitted um, they're really right at the very beginning of that journey with with AI because it's um, he's extremely cautious about it. Right, rightly in my uh, you know humble layman's opinion, which is to say, AI is an easy buzzword to throw around. If you've got data, AI it's a solution for some problem that you actually haven't identified. Um, they, he, BT is currently talking to a whole bunch of different vendors with a whole bunch of different ideas, and they're just bringing that together now. Um, ultimately, the goal, obviously, is to is to um, allow RPA processes to make decisions, um, to take actions um, without necessarily needing to be pointed in the right direction all the time by by people. I mean, that's a very simplistic explanation, but that's yeah. fundamentally what it is. Now, as, we, you know, as, as we've discussed, automation comes with, with its own challenges, principally around the impact it has on people. Now, Fevia spoke candidly about the road humps BT has faced on its journey, and he is adamant that RPA doesn't always have to be the answer. It's very important to be quite critical about what to automate and when, so it would be quite easy to just throw the net out there and say, find every process that people do. You know, is it repetitive? Is it data-driven? Right, let's automate it. Um, that's not necessarily always the right approach. Um, sometimes we have to do a bit of that to get some momentum, but really the, the right answer is to look at the, the efficiency of the process itself, first of all. Is, it being, is the process actually being done well manually? If it's not, there is a question to be asked that says, should we actually fix the process first and then automate the then more efficient process? Again, sometimes it might be the right thing to just say, automate what's there, it's low hanging fruit, just get rid of it. Sometimes though, there is a benefit in, in actually um, making the process more efficient first, at which point we may then decide it's good enough and there's no need to automate it, and that's fine as well. In, in my view, as a team, the, the mere fact we've gone in, we've assessed the process, um, and then we've made it better. The fact that there is a, isn't a robot sitting across it, we've added value to the business. They're now spending many less hours doing what they were doing before, so so everything is good. Now, Rom, Lee, Lee was upfront about this particular challenge and quite a few more as well when he spoke to you for the interview. What other challenges did he discuss? I know you made a thing of the, um, the sort of stakeholder buy-in that is required yeah. to implement automation. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, from... One of the interesting things that you get out of that clip that we just heard was how um, 
sitting in the technology team as an IT practitioner along with his team, his primary goal, and I think this speaks to the whole thing more than anything else, his primary goal is to improve the lives of the other employees, other people who are at BT. Now, that can be achieved with technology or just by improving processes. Their goal is to make people happier at work fundamentally and so I think that more than anything speaks to the the vision that BT actually has it's got nothing to do with all the things that people get scared about Um, but anyway in terms of the challenges yeah he uh, stakeholder management was the number one thing and he was quite candid about it he said look actually this is something we've struggled with um, and we're working really hard on that now Um, and there were there were a couple of major reasons that it that it it was or and is a struggle James, we read a lot about digital transformation projects, as Ron mentioned, falling by the wayside. Do you think mm. there are lessons to be learned here from BT's approach to automation, a very diligent one, a very um, thorough implementation? Yeah, I, I think there's no question that companies feel like they should be carrying out digital transformations across all their companies. And sometimes I don't think they really sit down first and, and figure out the reasons why or understand that actually not all areas of business are right for whether it's implementation of RPA or, or other technologies is simply not necessary. People definitely want to be seen to be doing this mm-hmm. because I think they feel that it makes them look like a modern organisation or or it looks good on a press release. I, th- I think that BT is, is definitely a, an example of a company that's doing it for the right reasons, that's putting the groundwork before it's done. And we know um, that from, from speaking to executives and, and, and various studies and, and, and releases that a company that doesn't undertake the proper groundwork, the buy-in of stakeholders, the buy-in of the, the whole C-suite that attempts to go on these digital transformation journeys, they will fail. They will be hugely costly failures. So BT... It's particularly relevant as well with automation, isn't it? Because definitely. the side effects could be quite um, bad if it's done badly. Of course. I think Rom said you know, they end up in a net loss. I don't think I can put it much better than that. And But... The, the sort of digital transformation highways littered with um, with, with the with these failed projects and you know a lot of the time it's to do with implementing technology where it's not necessary uh, not getting stakeholder engagement and I think what we saw with BT they've covered off those two bases which are two of the most common mistakes that have made they've covered them off really well um, and you, you'd have to think that that going you know down the line that will that will pay dividends. If if for some reason that project didn't work, it won't be because of those two reasons. It will be for something else. Now, just to finish up on this, I mentioned in the intro that um, Adderstall Park, which is where we went to to do the interview, is 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 an innovation hub for BT. And obviously, when you when you read a lot about innovation and digital transformation, you imagine digital hubs being um, you know these amazing places where you know the sort of creative um, you know environments which are really sort of impactful but actually this this was an office building where you've just got a lot of people doing a lot of hard work to make this stuff happen and that's the real story i think of digital transformation and led by someone like lee who as we've as we've said is clearly very diligent and very thorough in his approach to this rom how useful was it for you to get up close and personal to it to a huge company that is delivering such significant change through technology what were your main takeaways yeah it, it was fascinating i mean the location itself was interesting in that um bt is uh, ancient relatively speaking as a telco it's, i think the first in the world really um but at Astral Park itself, it used to be an airbase where the RAF tested wacky old experimental aircraft. Now there's a whole bunch of uh, big multinational um, tech companies on that on that estate that BT owns. Um, 
it's a 1970s era office. I mean, ultimately, it looks like that as well. That what makes it um, work is the people in it who are enormously multinational. There's people from all over the world in there. Um, the you know the pick of the bunch when it when it comes to talent. And what I took away more than anything is that there's no there was no hipstery flairness there. There were no um, you know ridiculous throwaway gestures like football tables and, and all this other nonsense that you know um attempts to portray an image of dynamism and innovation and all that sort of stuff what these what there were were rooms packed with incredibly clever people actually executing stuff at their desks and enthusiastically talking about it if whenever you spoke to them and that was digital transformation in motion not in words if you see what i mean yeah, and I think, yeah, that was, as I said, that was the main um, conclusion that I drew as well. Now, you can obviously read more about the um, BT case study in our latest magazine, or I've got some great videos which tell the story, not just of BT, but how Blue Prism and Cognizant have um, helped them a lot on their journey. But unlike these pesky software robots, we require a break and probably some coffee to reboot and refresh. We'll be back to talk all things VMworld after this. Power up your day with the Bulletin Brief, the latest news, insights and opinion delivered straight to your inbox. Subscribe now at digitalbullet.in. VMworld. Some of the world's leading authorities on cloud descended upon Barcelona earlier in November. But it wasn't just James and I who were there. No, seriously, we were lucky enough to be on the ground for VMware's all-singing, all-dancing conference alongside more than 13,000 other guests and over 3,500 companies, all keen for a piece of the action. Now, before we hear my interview with VMware's Richard Bennett, James, obviously we were, we were there, we experienced VMworld for the first time. Do you want to talk us through your sort of experience of, of attending an event of that scale, first of all? Yeah, I mean, I've attended conferences of, of the like before, um, but yeah, in, in terms of scale, it was it was very very impressive. They they took um, they took over the the same conference center that the MWC nineteen um, exhibition is at, um, and and again it was it's the biggest VM World event they've had in in Europe so far. Um, I imagine it will be you know yet bigger next year. But what I what I definitely did take away from it was a genuine sense of ex, sort of excitement. Mm-hmm. Um, when I spoke to the people there, and I, I am being honest, I, I've, been, I've been to conferences and spoke to people before where it's people are there because they sort of feel like they have to be. Yeah, do the motions of it. A little bit. I didn't really come away with that there. And and, and we spoke to a few VMware executives and some of the, the companies that they work with. Um, genuine sense of excitement. I think they, they see a huge potential there in terms of what, what they're doing at the moment. But also I thought that the, the, the people I spoke to, there was a, a really sort of, relaxed feeling about the whole place I do think that there's a little bit of VMware that does that on purpose to sort of position themselves that way as a, as a company that you know you can work with quite comfortably um, but yeah the, the, so I came away from it really impressed with what they put on uh, first and foremost and there's no doubt that over the next couple of years we're going to be reading about what VMworld is, is doing in this sort of cloud space because yeah, they've got pretty grand plans. I think, yeah, from my perspective, the point about how it just felt, obviously it's a it's a cloud software company, so, you know, it's a hard thing to sort of brand. Yep, but yeah. But actually they're, they've gone full fully at it, haven't they, from that perspective. They've um, got this sort of slogan, which is make your mark, and that was plastered everywhere around yeah. Barcelona, it seemed, even in the airport when we were leaving there, yep. it was again. Um, but they're, they're clearly 
on a mission. Obviously, these guys got loads of money. Yeah, I just yeah. I, I did want to make yeah. the, that point. They definitely position themselves as like quite a cool company, quite laid back. For example, they had the Stereophonics playing on the in the evening, and they had the Killers playing at their US event. So th- there is that, but let's not forget this is a huge company in its own right. I spoke with their CEO Sanjay Poonan, who was telling me about how their five billion dollar acquisitions this year are going to add to the company and their ambitions to turn over twenty billion next year. So it is a big player in its own right. Absolutely, and I think you know, let's talk a bit about that now. I mean, VMware, as we know, started off life as a just a virtualization company, but now it is a wholly different beast, isn't it? And they were shouting about that a lot at the um, conference just this year. It spent a combined, as James said, combined four point eight billion on acquiring Pivotal Software and Carbon Black, doubling down on Kubernetes and enterprise security. So it's spreading its wings. Um, we're going to focus on VMware's advisory services, which is an increasingly important function of the business as it, as, as it does um, increase the sort of services that it offers. I spoke to the division's head, Richard Bennett, and started off by asking him exactly how the company steers its clients through its technology journeys. The most successful relationships tend to be uh, frequent. So um, if I look at my own work, when I was an advisory consultant, uh, I would have very good relationships with C-level, not just CIOs, CTOs, CFOs as well, um, but with the C-level at least two or three times a month with some of our most important customers. Equally, um, we support and run with our marketing teams in EMEA uh, lots and lots of executive events. So whilst one of my favorites is Chief Wine Officer because it comes with wine tasting, Equally, I designed a program called the Colab Series, which is a, we, we bring, for example, um, CIOs and uh, chief HR officers into a room to talk about workspace technology. Or we bring uh, a CFO and a CTO into a room to talk about modernized applications and multi-cloud. And so those elements all come together. So it's direct meetings, it's constant uh, community models. We have um, a number of thought leadership groups, which we have regular um, customers attending and giving their own feedback by the way it's a we approach it as a 360 degree loop I, I'm genuinely interested in what we're getting right and what we can do better at mm-hmm. and so the advisory guys are there as well to try to build that um, uh, I guess intrinsic model is probably what I'd say but really is just a relationship situation you mentioned how much VMware has expanded its services obviously we know the acquisitions of Pivotal and Carbon mm-hmm. Black have you know, taking things to a new level for you guys. Does that sort of represent a challenge in a way as well? Because you, your, sort of, your sort of scope is so much wider, you have to be on top of a lot more from your perspective. Uh, no, actually no? it makes it easier because yeah. the scope is now more complete. So in previous worlds, and every technology vendor suffers from this, there's always gaps, right? I mean, we live in a multi-vendor world. Customers want multi-vendor opportunity. They want the ability to have um, anything that their business needs delivered in a way that they, they feel most comfortable with. The beauty of VMware and the acquisitions like Pivotal and Carbon Black, but equally um, the way we've expanded our multi-cloud operation to include things like IoT and Pulse IoT and 4G, uh, and 5G I should say, we're, we're now able to address customer needs in a fundamentally different way. So when we're having conversations about what is your strategic direction, um, VMware's digital foundation becomes the all-encompassing platform to, to make that a reality. Mm-hmm. Okay, really interesting. So. Um on a more general point, you know, you mentioned it there, the speed of technology change, you know, mm. VMware has to keep up with that as, as well as advise customers on how to keep up with that. Like, where do you begin with that? Oh, we hire really smart people. <laughs> but the but, smartest people still, you know, can't predict the, the future. Yeah, no, you, you're yeah. very true. So there's, um, I think there's a thing that um, most technology vendors miss and that we get right. 
So we always start a lot of our conversations by putting the human being at the center of the conversation. And let's be clear, uh, technology innovation is driven by human expectation. I mean, I, I look at my world and why should I have better technology in my house than when I come to work? So a lot of those curves and a lot of those trends uh, we're seeing driven by society. I mean, yes, we couldn't go back 11 years and talk about how the iPhone came in, but that isn't important anymore. What we should be talking about is how modern applications is now driving innovation. And I've seen some really cool stuff recently. I mean, one of the things in healthcare is a little sensor, and by, by little, it's one millimeter by one millimeter, self-powered. Um, you place it on your teeth, so it's, a t it's, it's a glued onto your teeth, um, and it's a methodology to measure your well-being. So when you eat, uh, it measures all of the different substances in your food. So if you're drinking alcohol, it measures all the different levels of that. It reports back to an application on your telephone. So now we're talking about wearable devices as well. And it tells you if you should be eating more fruit sticks rather than you know, bacon sandwiches. <laughs> and there's that, there's that kind of really, so that's like that level of innovation uh, is a bleeding edge stuff. Yeah. But to deliver that, you would need, for example, uh, 5G, you would need IoT, you would need a uh, multi-cloud model, and all of the stuff that underpins innovation is what we do. Mm -hmm. So all we're offering here is a platform for the innovation. Listening to Richard there, James, it's clear VMware's expansion in the last couple of years has it well-placed to benefit in this era of cloud. Now, did he get that sense of anticipation from the event that it was a company very much on the app? Kind of touched on it already. Yeah, without question. So they've made it a very deliberate policy of theirs to um, to develop themselves into an important partner and friend of these of the big cloud companies. Um because they've they've seen the way that technology is developing, right? It, it, it cloud is and and multi cloud has become absolutely integral to to enterprise. It, it wouldn't function without it. If you think of that journey in the last five years, where it's gone from from sort of proof of, proof of concept to a, you know to to just being completely ubiquitous is quite the journey. And I think they called that that pretty early. So they 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 want to be friends of companies like that. And and Sanjay, who I spoke with, made that point very very clearly that that. That they want to want to be there with them. What I would say is that the the same is true the other way, in that all of those big cloud providers were there with big stands, showing people how they could run their VMware software within their native clouds. Right. So it's definitely a, a two way street. They've 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 embraced the big cloud companies, no doubt about that. But they've they've been embraced back as well. Yeah. Rom, I'm going to bring you in here. Uh, Rom still is here. I, I am. <laughs> <laughs> now, Richard, who we spoke to, works in advisory services, as we spoke about there. Now, does what he said kind of hit home the realization that for companies who want or are obliged to be digital first, you know, that the kind of support that these guys offer is really critical? Yeah, I mean, VMware are are angling for the same kind of spot in the marketplace as AWS and Microsoft re related to our earlier conversation. Mm -hmm. um, you kind of don't have much of a choice um, whether you are going to work with these guys or not. They're, they're so important to what's happening now, particularly if you talk about 5G again, like we were before. This is all part and parcel of exactly the same set of uh, things that all companies, all enterprises are now looking for. They're not looking only at how what their cloud strategy is or how they're virtualizing stuff on there they're not just looking at iot or 5 they're looking at all of these things at the same time because they're all in completely interdependent um vmware are obviously doing a very good job of positioning and positioning themselves right at the heart of of all of those uh decisions that are being made and as as he was just saying those decisions are being made incredibly rapidly now because change is occurring so quickly 
Um, yeah, I was going to ask you guys about that. I mean, James, how how much of a kind of concern or problem do you think it is for enterprise the, the speed of technology change? Because is there a, a case that it makes kind of medium term, long term planning very difficult, very hard when you can't you can't predict what the technology is going to do? Uh, yeah, it certainly makes it certainly makes it difficult. Yeah. I don't think it, it makes it impossible, but yeah. clearly. Um, it's, it's it is a it is a big challenge for companies and and what they what they have to try and figure out is it is is a way that to to be able to adapt quickly to to what is a, a, obviously a rapidly changing market. I think clearly businesses that aren't able to sort of pivot um, and and be agile are going to struggle in in what is going to be a sort of new enterprise reality. So. Richard, Richard said it there, though. I mean, obviously, yeah. technology is the, is the talk, but he, his answer was people. They hire the right people, smart yeah, people. It, to, it to always tr- comes back to people, yeah. right? I mean, we spoke um, about the about BT, and, and Rob made the point. It's not about big, shiny offices and technology for technology's sake. It's about marrying up um, technology and realising its potential with really smart people. Mm-hmm. You know, technology on its, on its own just will, will not work. So... So I think it's always been about that, and I think that's why fears over a completely RPA workforce will never come to light. Because actually, these technologies can't be scaled or have their potential fulfilled w- without working hand in hand with, as you said, really smart people. Yeah. How how do you guys feel about having a chip on your tooth to measure exactly what you eat and drink? Um, Rom, I'm looking at you. I thought that was a great idea, and until he said it's going to keep an eye on how much beer you drink. Is oh, hang on. I can think of a couple of people who <laughs> don't want to know know about that. But the um, no, I, actually, generally speaking, uh, what he's talking about there is um, the the digitization of of our world and ourselves. And in a in a in an idealized kind of future, which doesn't actually feel that far away now, you can imagine all sorts of use cases like that. Now you can apply sensors to yourself to improve your own health and well being. As long as you can sort out the, the privacy conundrum there, because frankly, I, I would want to be in control of that data personally. <laughs> Give me a uh, excellent blockchain that I can have with that, please. Thank you very much. Um, but you know, you can apply the same logic to any device doing anything anywhere in the environment, and that plays into um, the the story of emerging smart cities and um, industries uh, such as manufacturing that when you understand exactly what's going on in and out of your factory, um, you can make your processes more efficient, which is important if you're going to try and deal with climate change and so on. So all of these things are massively important. And VMware, understandably, are turning up in places like Barcelona, bouncing up and down, being quite excited about all this, because they're just looking at all of that, that. What a glorious opportunity it is to be part of the fundamental machinery, the fabric of all of this that as it's, as it's happening, which is very much what they are. Enough of that really good point, James. Would you volunteer for a tooth chip to measure your consumption of food and drink? No, absolutely no. not. No. I don't need a chip to tell me that my diet is dreadful. And Do you not want the data? Um, Luddite. <laughs> I mean, I, re- I really don't, no. Or would the chip, I think with me, the chip would probably just get eroded by the amount of sugar just kind of mm. passing over it. So it just right. crumble. Yeah. Into- <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you're, you're right. But I, I was just about to get serious again, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think our time is up. We won't put you through this any longer, listener, don't worry. Now, um, issue 11 of Digital Bulletin will be out at the end of November. Lots of exciting things in there for you to have a read of. As for us, we'll be back in a month's time. Thank you for listening. 
That was the Digital Bulletin Podcast, brought to you by Bulletin Media. Listen and subscribe to a range of podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. Plug into digitalbullet.in for news, features and case studies on the very latest in enterprise technology and digital transformation. 